So this is what they call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he said, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Jesus says, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I remember in Sunday school, this would be a kind of a staple of our annual curriculum, right? The Good Samaritan. It always seems so simple, right? It's kind of like, bam, here you go. This is what you do, and this is how we kind of take it and run with it. Truth be told, when I was doing my work and kind of looking at this passage, man, it is complex. There is a lot to unpack when we're talking about the Good Samaritan. So kind of working with that, we're going to try to unload some of that this morning. And I think it's, it's quite interesting, and it, it's quite telling as to who we are as individuals. So I openly share with my students at the beginning of the semester that I am passionate about teaching the intricacies of world religious traditions. Yet I maintain belief in God and Christ in my personal life. It never fails. Every semester, I am confronted about the perceived complexity of my profession as an instructor or professor and my faith. How can you speak so passionately and positively about so many traditions all the while maintaining your allegiance to your chosen faith? It's a simple question, right? That I should be able to spout out an answer to without hesitation. It is my profession, it's my livelihood, so therefore I should have that information. I should have a reasoned response that I can lean into so that I can answer that. Answers could have been, my job at the college requires objectivity, right? Or in the name of knowledge and learning, I uh, take the time and understand other faiths. Or just because I'm working at understanding the theologies and ideologies of other traditions does not mean I believe in them, right? 
However, answering the question is not that simple. Answering with such a tone and perspective actually feeds a very dangerous narrative. The thought process behind those people asking that question, uh, and if I were to give a simplified answer to that position, is that true faith requires a binary thinking, kind of an absolutist tendency. So there's only one correct interpretation, and all others are misleading or inaccurate. <laughs> if I were to give in to that and just kind of say, there's one truth, everything else is false. Many believe that one should not be allowed to maintain a positive perspective of multiple traditions. Doing so diminishes you know, the bond that I have or maintain with my chosen faith or religion. Students can't seem to rationalize a personal desire to understand and know and respect other practices, faiths, and cultures that differ in size and scope from the one that they profess or accept. So an answer that I probably you know, should give uh, that opens uh, the door to dialogue, opens and alludes to glimpses of learning from other traditions, in some people's mind is not allowed. I'm <laughs> not allowed to give that. Making such statements is taboo, it's heresy. Blending is completely inappropriate and should not be and should be disregarded at all costs. Our culture feeds that narrative. Oftentimes out in public and at the expense of peaceful interactions and conversations and honest growth and learning. But looking back at our scripture, it's a simple question really, right? It's like I had a simple question, I'm supposed to answer it simply. Jesus had a simple question. Who is my neighbor? That's what the lawyer asked. Plausible answers for the first century would have been, could have been friend, the other guy right? Uh, those who live in our community, Jews, fellow, someone who shares a common border, would have been simple answers to the question, who is my neighbor? Had Jesus wanted to be explicit, he could have simply stated anything specific. But as we can see, doing so would feed the dangerous narrative. A simple answer would lead the lawyer to a comfortable conclusion, a clear identifier of whom or who he should love. You see where I'm going here? A, a simple response would allow the lawyer and all who were in earshot of Jesus to narrow their scope and creep into absolutist thinking. There's only so many folks who are important. The rest can be forgotten or ignored. So Jesus recognizes this conundrum and decides to flip the script. Isn't it odd that the question is, who's my neighbor? But Jesus' ultimately response is, here's an example of how you should tend to and care for and respect others. It's the neighborly thing to do. A simple answer to the question would have surely created more problems and distorted the message, no matter how open or affirming or welcoming it may have been. Just as many students think in absolutes, there's but one right way and all others are wrong. So would the Jewish lawyer and his friends have to receive the easy answer from Jesus. They would check off that box that says they are, these are the good ones, these are the bad ones, and then move on. With that said, let's dive a little deeper. What was the script that Jesus flipped and who were the characters? What do we know about the characters and why are they important? 
First, why did he jump to a story about a neighbor? This one's and, and how to treat others. This was actually quite clear. Okay, why did he take this angle? It's quite clear. Understanding this is simple. You see, deeply embedded in the Christian faith, indeed, deeply embedded in the Jewish tradition, which is the mother of the Christian faith, and deeply embedded in the faith and traditions and values of many other world religions, is a profound conviction and a sure and certain value and virtue that care for the stranger, the alien, the visitor, is a sacred duty, a sacred vow that they must take. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book writes and says, You shall love the stranger, for remember, you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, in the New Testament, Jesus, is in the parable of the Last Judgment, says, When you welcome the stranger, when you did it to these who are members of my family, you have done it to me. When you welcome the stranger, you welcome Jesus. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament says those who have welcomed the strangers have sometimes welcomed angels unawares. Welcoming the stranger, as some traditions call the alien, welcoming those who are visiting among us or cardinal virtue and value in our Christian faith. Therefore, it makes perfect sense why Jesus provided this parable or story after being asked, who is my neighbor? Again, unpacking this a little bit further, Let's take a closer look at the characters in the story, starting with the character identified in the title. And Ben Ben read the scripture this morning, and he said, I rarely read the titles, but this morning I just popped out and said it, right? He didn't know it had anything to do with what I was going to say. But the good Samaritan. Don't we find that a little problematic? That's not Jesus' title, that's the one that has been handed down to us by translators and interpreters. That the descriptive good is needed at all tells us something powerful about how Samaritans, broadly speaking, would be understood bad. Dangerous. Other. Enemy. Samaritans in the first century were outcasts, unclean, and always identified as troublemakers. It reflects a pretty racist worldview, much like the one we live in today, where a culture of white privilege invites us to divide people of color into good kid and, you know, all the rest. Like the ones who live in the suburbs and the ones who live in the parts of towns you'd rather not go and visit. The safe refugees and the ones who make us nervous. The legal and the illegal immigrants. They have a black friend, so I'm not racist mentality. We sometimes hold a cognitive dissonance that lets us determine in any given moment whether or not we're going to humanize the person by the side of the road. For a clear example of how that works, let's look to a small town in Illinois a town where the local population just a couple of years ago voted overwhelmingly for a certain platform of xenophobia. One that pledged to build walls and deport lots of undocumented immigrants. The story goes, a few months into it, the town became outraged because the beloved owner of a local Mexican restaurant was being deported. They felt the sweeping immigration crackdown should make exceptions 
for their, the men like Juan, their friend and neighbor. He's a pillar of the community, they say. He would never hurt anyone, they say. And a direct quote from the article. He is a good man that should be a role model for other immigrants. In other, one, in other words, this one is our immigrant. Our neighbor. He's one of the good ones. Not like those nameless, faceless immigrants we see on TV. Those immigrants are not our neighbor. Therefore, they are probably criminals. Think about what's being said here. The label good should cause us pause. Would we create a helping organization? One thing to create a helping organization is the Good Samaritan, right? The Samaritan's Purse, all those things. What if they called it Good Baptist or Good Catholic, right? Uh, what about designing labels called Good Mexican or Good Muslim or Good Arab, right? What are we saying about the rest of the population? What are we saying about the rest of those who are simply their name? Of course not. Doing so right now is considered offensive to most because it implies the rest are not good. Generalizing or labeling a group is an issue we've had to deal with for a very long time and something that does not seem to be going away anytime soon. Once you get past the simplistic morality reading of the parable and dig into some of the layers of otherness inherent in the context, it's hard to know who we as individuals should identify with in the story. The straight-up Sunday school lesson is that we should identify with the Samaritan. That's problematic, though, right? For a couple of reasons. First of all, it ignores the radical implications of the Samaritan's outsider status. The many ways he is viewed as a threat to all of Jesus' people and how they would see him. Putting ourselves in that role as the Samaritan assumes he's just a regular guy and not the social pariah that he truly was seen as. And if we don't recognize the negative implications of his nationality, we miss the radical message of mercy that overcomes all human boundaries. Also reading into it like this, ourselves as Good Samaritan, we are effectively putting ourselves into the favorable seat in the story, right? That is, again, our privilege at work. If we identify with the unlikely Savior here, the, that paints Christians as the good guys. And the Levite and the priest, both of whom are Jewish, as the bad guys. See why it gets tricky? The whole Christian good, Jewish bad interpretation of Scripture has established a foundation for anti-Jewish Semitism and sentiment throughout history. There's been a rampant resurgence of anti-Semitism lately. From desecrated cemeteries to bomb threats at community centers, hate-filled anti-Semitic messages being screened by neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, Virginia, and massacres in synagogues. In light of these recent events, we need to be extra careful that we don't fall into the trap of reading Scripture with an unfavorable view of Judaism and an overly pious impression of Christianity. So who are we in the story? We can't be the Samaritan. Lord knows we can't be Jesus. So perhaps, perhaps we can identify with the busy priest or the hurried Levite, averting our gaze from the suffering in front of us, keeping our hands clean from some notion of purity. But I'm going to go out on a limb. 
and say that most of us could probably best identify with the lawyer. In search of a checklist containing the articles of faith-based living. Feeling that if we can write them all into our day plan or at some point, a couple times a year, we're doing all right. Our place of privilege allows us the same bit of cognitive dissonance to view even the most central stories of our faith from a distance and insert ourselves as bystanders, not the villains or the victims in need of mercy. At this particular point in human story, it is clear that we need to confess the sins of racism and fear the other that is deeply ingrained in culture and even in our faith story. We confess that our privilege and our limited reading of Scripture and history continues to render violence and perpetuate cycles of poverty. Maybe just as much we need to confess our love of easy answers and quick fixes, our reliance on knowledge and achievements over the grace of God, and the psychological boundaries we place on compassion, allowing us to determine each day what is and what is not meant by being by neighbor. So let's think of it in two ways. Let's create our own parables in current modern day times. Let's look in Florida in 2016. A mosque was burned to the ground. Well, I guess I should say another mosque was burned to the ground. And as the fundraising effort began to rebuild the worship space, they noticed something funny about the donations that were coming in. It, everything was coming in in increments of $18. Those donations, it turned out, were coming primarily from their Jewish neighbors. And in a Jewish tradition, 18 is the number of well-wishing. It means long life for the recipient. Flip the scene to St. Louis in 2017, where a Jewish cemetery was wrecked by vandals. Who showed up to work alongside the Jewish friends and help restore their space? Was it the mayor's office? coming to the rescue with tax dollars and goodwill of the people? Was it the Christians walking in the way of Jesus, love and mercy? Nope. Either of those would be a formulaic answer, but this time it was the Muslim neighbors who showed compassion. It was the Muslim neighbors, those feared and scapegoated by everyone, from the government to the media to the Christian establishment, the Muslims organized and raised more than $100,000. They righted overturned headstones, and then when another burial site was destroyed in Philadelphia, they went and did the same thing there. Muslims and Jews are working together a lot these days to stand up to bigotry because both of these groups, though historical enemies in some parts of the world, have been united in their marginalization. They share a bond as strangers in this particular strange land and have this one thing in common, that many Americans have refused to recognize them as neighbors. It is time that we acknowledge the complicity of our own privilege, our own race, and the Christian narrative itself. And pushing these groups to the edges. It's time we realize we are not the hero of any Jesus story. 
but rather the privileged bystander, wondering when we can get the right answer and be on our way. Oh yeah, Jesus understood. A simple answer to the question, who's my neighbor, would have stirred up a whole heap of issues. That's why he flipped that script. His determination to show the lawyer that learning who is his neighbor is far less important than understanding what it means to be neighborly to others. The longer, more difficult answer to this, the work of eternal life is actually eternal. It's not rooted in the idea of some far-off heaven. It is here and it is daily. It's a lifetime of following in the way of Jesus, not just a few parsed words of His teachings. It is the way of everyday mercy, everyday grace, everyday widening the boundaries of who belongs with us and whose neighbor we are going to be. Will we ever learn? Will we ever get it right? This business of love and life and being human. I wonder. But I also suspect that Jesus rejects the very premise of the question. The parable of the Good Samaritan invites us, calls us, challenges us to be neighbor to the neighbor. Some of our neighbors are at the border, and some of our neighbors are those who have immigrated to this country and are living right in our neighborhood or in our city or in our community or our state. Others are neighbors who live down the street, who look and act differently than us, they have different bank accounts, different wallet sizes, different activities they do on a daily basis. To show compassion to them is to obey Jesus. Go and do likewise. Show compassion. Show mercy. Help the neighbor. Help the stranger. Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself.